This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. If you were to go to globalnews.ca right now, you would see a headline. And that headline says, Christia Freeland will replace Morneau to become first female finance minister. Here's what I'm wondering. Could we fast forward time? Wouldn't it be fun to fast forward time? Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. Uh, Time travel doesn't really work, and we're uh, we're a long way away from ever being able to want to time travel, I think, in terms of where we are. You might want to fast forward to 2021, just have a peek, but what if things aren't any better? So let's not worry about that. But if we were to glimpse, let's say that, if we were to glimpse into the future, could we see a headline that says this? Christia Freeland takes over reins of federal liberal party. Could we then hit that button one more time and and zip ahead and see this headline? Christia Freeland becomes Canada's next prime minister. Is that what we're witnessing here now? That's what I wonder. Because when you look at who Christia Freeland is, when you look at what she has done, and you look at this big portfolio that she's taking on right now, I'm thinking that fast-forwarding into the future, taking over the reins of the Liberal Party, becoming one of Canada's next prime ministers, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility on one small account that she wants to do it. That would be it, if she wants to do it. Because she is somebody who who has this real sense of civic duty. It's what took her into politics in the first place. And we'll talk about that in just a little while. But this is a big move right now. This is a big thing that is happening. And not just because Christia Freeland is Canada's first female finance minister. It has nothing to do with that. We are in the midst of a pandemic. This is a portfolio that comes with nothing but red attached to it. How far into the red do you want to go? That may be the reason why Christia Freeland has herself this post as female finance minister number one in this country. Maybe the prime minister and Bill Morneau, now the former finance minister, maybe they weren't seeing things the same way. Who knows? We can sit here and hypothesize, but it's always better to get some expertise from someone who follows things like this incredibly closely. Stephanie Schwinnard is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University and joins us now. Professor Schwinnard, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's kind of rewind time. We were fast-forwarding, glimpsing into the future, and I'm, I'm just wondering whether there's a headline somewhere out there where Christia Freeland one day is the prime minister in this country. And I think there'll be a lot of people who would support that. But let's, let's go back in time just a little bit. Take us through what you feel has been the impetus for Bill Morneau resigning and now Christia Freeland taking over. Let's start with Mr. Morneau resigning. How do you see that having played out? Uh, well, it seems like uh, there had been some, some disagreements between the Prime Minister and Mr. Morneau about how to deal with COVID-19 and how to deal with what's coming up next in the next, in the next few months. Uh, but, but those disagreements are not unusual. Uh, it, it does happen that the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance don't always see eye to eye 
on uh, the best possible steps to take. Uh, I would say the uh, the way that the We Charity uh, affair played out, and especially the fact that uh, the Prime Minister apparently was only made aware that Mr. Morneau uh, was uh, was involved uh, or was to become involved in, in the situation uh, on, about an hour before he testified before Finance Committee and announced that uh, he owed... Uh, we charity about forty one thousand uh, dollars was probably a big point of contention uh, for uh, for the prime minister's office, and uh, of course there's been uh, the rumors for the last uh, week or so, which must have been pretty uh, pretty tough, pretty humiliating for Mr. Marno, uh with uh, with rumors being published that uh, he would be called to resign. So there was a lot going on in the last uh, little while uh, surrounding uh, the minister of finance. In a situation like this, you always can't help but wonder if there's some admission of guilt in stepping down. Is that a road that you think needs to be explored, or is that something that you think, no, you know, it's it's more likely disagreements and then, as you just described, the whole ball of wax that goes into this? Well, I think Mr. Marneau uh, already had stated himself that uh, he... he, um, he you know, uh, was uh, remorseful for having forgotten to pay back for for We Charity. And, uh, of course, the the ethics commissioner will pursue uh, his uh, investigation. uh, That that was made clear last night, that despite Mr. Marno stepping down, that the investigation would still go ahead. So we'll hear more on that uh, whenever Mr. Dion is done with with his final report. Uh, But... uh, you know, Mr. Mano in, in his presser, uh, in his press conference yesterday was very keen not to talk about We Charity and he wanted the narrative to really be fixed on him not wanting to run again, which is in fact, uh, quite a, a possibility even before the We Affair. Uh, Mr. Mano is quite a wealthy man. Uh, and his family does not like to be put in the spotlight, and it has been increasingly put in the spotlight in the last few weeks. Uh, so I'm assuming there was possibly some family pressure for him to uh, to step down and get back to his regular life, you know. Uh, so so there, uh, there there was a lot uh, to unpack from, from last night's press conference and also a lot of things that were left unsaid. We're talking with Dr. Stephanie Schwinar, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University. Looking at the transition last night, the resignation of Finance Minister Bill Morneau, and then today, the announcement that Christia Freeland is going to be taking over, and that was reported by Global News a little while ago, that she will replace Bill Morneau and become the first female finance minister. Is there anything she can't or doesn't do? It just seems like she's that employee that you look at and say, wow, this person can do anything. So here, they can do this and they can do this and this and this and this. And if they were ever to leave, you'd need six people to replace them. Is that who Christia Freeland is? Uh, it definitely sounds like she uh, she has uh, risen to become the Liberal Party's fixer. You know, when, when there's an issue, you can call Christia Freeland to uh to resolve it and to uh and, and to hold several different portfolios all at once. I have to say though I was uh, I was pleased to hear that uh, intergovernmental affairs would go back to Danielle Leblanc uh, since uh since Mrs uh, Freeland has taken over uh the finance portfolio because you know she's already vice prime minister uh finance is going to be another big portfolio and that's not unseen but there's only so much one minister can do right. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Well, at least she has one thing off her plate, and we'll see how people can kind of share what else is on her plate. Overall, though, her relationship with the Prime Minister, it has always seemed very strong. Is that something that that you see playing out in the next little while? Does that help Justin Trudeau through what he's going through? Well, she's definitely one of the uh, the strongest and most credible members of his cabinet. Uh, so, so having her step up as finance minister was probably a good move for him and for his government's uh, uh, credibility. However, uh, and I know you were you were just talking about this about the prospect of uh, Mrs. Freeland wanting to eventually possibly become prime minister. Uh, she'll she'll have to be careful not to be too uh, closely entwined with the Trudeau brand uh, because, as we've seen, it's a it's a brand that's been uh, severely weakened in the, in the last few years. And so, if she wants to run eventually as uh, as a contender for the prime ministership, uh, she'll want to to have her name of her own and not be. Uh, too directly linked with uh, this government. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. We're talking with Dr. Stephanie Schwinar, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University. One last thing, Dr. Schwinard, and that's essentially going forward, you're dealing with a really difficult portfolio. And she has never mentioned that, that I've ever read or heard that she has designs on being prime minister one day. Who knows? That was that was just conjecture on my part to begin the show and think, are we seeing this? Are we seeing something happening here? But this is a this is a tricky portfolio. Already you're looking at a deficit of three hundred and forty three billion that no doubt is going to have to grow even larger. Is this a, a, a lose lose situation for anybody who takes this over? How do you make this one look good? Yeah, it's going to be it's definitely already a tough uh, portfolio, and it's not going to get any easier in the, in the following months and the following years, uh, because she'll have to deal not only with the fallout of uh, the pandemic, but also she'll have to design a plan for recovery. And so uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the government decided to call on external expertise. You know, the name of Mark Carney has been uh, swung around quite a lot in the last in the last week as well. So uh, I am under the impression that he'll be involved in some shape or form uh, with uh, with uh, what's coming up next. Uh, but uh, but it, it will be tough for her uh, definitely to, uh, to to have to foot the bill for uh, for the deficit that that this government is facing, and uh, the opposition will be keen to see a budget. I think when when they when they get back in October, uh, an economic um, snapshot like they gave uh, a couple of weeks back is not going to be sufficient. So she'll have to present very soon of her very first budget, and it's not going to be an easy one. Well, we appreciate all of your insight, Dr. Schwinnard. Thank you so much for the time, and we'll watch the story continue to unfold, as we always do. Thanks for having me. Keep safe. That is Dr. Stephanie Schwinnard, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University. So a lot of things to look at here, and I think one of them is the story of Christia Freeland. And I want to go back and maybe understand it a little bit better because you may know a little about Christia Freeland you may know a lot about Christia Freeland but she is she's a fascinating person and she is as Dr. Schwinnard pointed out the fixer and this was outlined by Mercedes Stevenson she was on the Bill Kelly show right off the bat just after nine o'clock today 
And one of the things that she pointed to that Christia Freeland has done so well is she has mended fences that were severely broken. We're talking Donald Trump's Mexico wall tumbling down. Did you ever see that video where it just kind of falls over? Yeah, it was like that. And you had to go in and mend that fence between the federal government and Alberta with Premier Jason Kenney and the federal government and Ontario with Premier Doug Fortz. We're talking about two conservative premiers, and relations had not been good, not even close. Now, think about when you hear Doug Ford talk about Christia Freeland. How does he talk about her? They are buds. He will not come out and say, well, you know, the federal government under Justin Trudeau is doing a very good job. He will come out and say, you know, I like this about whatever it is in the federal government. And he will immediately point to Christia Freeland. Yeah, I had a chat with Christia Freeland the other day, the deputy prime minister. And and then he will outline what it is that he has done. She did that. She did that. And she has done so many different things. But I think it's important to go back to her origin story. This is not a superhero thing. This is not Spider-Man, Peter Parker being bitten by a spider. But her origin story in politics goes back to two things. One, very personal for her, and another that she was just kind of born into. In our life, what do we like? We like things where we can get them now. Look at Amazon. How wild is it? that you can order something, and even though there are some delays right now, before the pandemic, we could get it the next day, and that something was like a piano. Yeah, no problem. We'll ship that. When? Overnight. It'll be on your doorstep. Just make sure your neighbors don't steal it. That's what we like. We like things to be immediate. When you can't remember the name of somebody, you Google it now. No, no, no. I always think that's dangerous. You know, put your brain to work. Mental calisthenics, nothing wrong with those. But when it comes to testing for COVID-19, we don't get the immediate. And in some ways, that can be problematic. Because if somebody, A, takes a little while to even know they should get a test, and if they can be shedding the virus when they're asymptomatic, which is things that we hear, then we have some problems in that they may have interacted with all kinds of people, and may have infected them, and then they finally get the results of the test, and then you know. And then you go backwards, and, okay, contact tracing shows that you've been in contact with all of these people. So there's got to be a way to do things faster than even what we have, 24 to 48 hours. In the U.S., there are places they only dream of that. You're looking at five days if you can get a test at all. They can talk about their top-notch testing stuff. There are other results that show differently. But here, 24 to 48 hours, usually that's what we're waiting. But where's the immediate? Where's the litmus test? When you go to the doctor and you get all kinds of things tested, it, it usually doesn't take too long to find out what you have in your urine. They just put the little litmus paper in it, and it shows exactly what's going on. So we are thinking about making things faster in many laboratories and courtesy of many companies and trying to get rapid testing, rapid screening going. Joining us right now to talk a little bit more about this is Dr. Zoe McLaren, Associate Professor in Public Policy at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. Dr. McLaren, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. 
we like fast, fast, fast. We we really, really enjoy that. However, you know, we've got a saying in, in the news world, you can be first or you can be right. And sometimes you can't be both. And in this case, I'm, I'm kind of wondering how you would feel about a first versus right if we sped things up incredibly. Sure. It sounds like you're asking about the concerns about accuracy with these rapid screening tests. And that is definitely something that we want to uh, focus on and, and, and be concerned about. So basically, the rapid screening tests are going to prioritize speed over accuracy. But it turns out that even when they prioritize speed, they um, are still very accurate and are actually especially accurate if they're looking at the levels of uh, the coronavirus that will make somebody very contagious. Well, that so they sounds like very good ac- news. Ac- exactly. They are really good news. Uh, so they, um, so even with that trade-off, they're still, um, they're still very, very, very accurate. And we, because they are both rapid and also less expensive, we can test more people, which helps us catch more cases. So even with a little bit less accuracy, we're able to test much more broadly and do what we really want to do here, which is try to catch as many contagious cases before they're able to spread the virus. Absolutely. Okay, so what do we know about rapid testing? Because immediately we started to hear about how testing was done for COVID-19, adding it involves a very long swab. Now, we've talked to people who've gone through the tests and they've said, hey, you know, as much as it's it's not something you're going to do on a day off, uh, it's it's not the, the end all and, and the end of the world in order to get this done. But in terms of these tests, how different would they be from the long cotton swab down the nasal passage so uh even so there's two different types of testing diagnostic testing and screening testing diagnostic testing is what we usually think about in terms of the medical setting where we need to have a really really high level of accuracy be sure whether somebody is carrying the coronavirus or not to be able to get the medical care to them that they need because for example if it isn't the coronavirus they might have something else and they need to know that as well in terms of screening testing we're trying to do a broad screening to get um, information about a lot of different people and make sure a lot of people know their status so even for the diagnostic testing that long swab that's quite uncomfortable and goes kind of to the back of the nose That's not required for all diagnostic testing, even um, previously. So I had a coronavirus test a few months ago, and it was just basically a Q-tip just inside the nostril was the way the test was done. So there's a few different ways to do the diagnostic testing. The screening testing actually broadens much more to different types of uh, ways of collecting the sample. So they can use a nasal swab, but they can also use saliva. And so that's the spit test where you spit into a test tube and then the, that they use the, the saliva to process the test. And I guess you've got us thinking about a lot of different applications right now for this, because if all of a sudden you had a saliva test or if it was just a, a little swab, you start thinking about going into public places or how many times a day you could do things like this. We're talking with Dr. Zoe McLaren, Associate Professor of Public Policy at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. And you yourself have, have a great impetus for getting some of this research done. And, and getting things happening because you have family in Canada, do you not? 
Yeah, so I'm originally from Montreal, and I've been in the U.S. for over 20 years now. But my family still lives um, in Quebec, and I'm not able to visit them because the border is closed. That's one of the reasons why I've been working so hard um, on policy in the U.S. To, to fight the coronavirus so we can get the pandemic under control and that it makes sense to order, um, open the border again. And if you could go to the border and, and get a, a nice little, you know, nasal swab or have a saliva test done and, and be on your way through, I mean, these are things that we probably didn't picture would ever be a concern. But all of a sudden, you've got our minds working toward that. Could we see rapid testing done that simply where you could put it in the hands of someone who wasn't a medical professional and still have it count? Yeah, the whole idea with this rapid screening testing is that it's the type of testing that can be done by individuals in their own home. It can be done at schools. It can be done at workplaces. It can be done at airports. It can be done at the border. It can be done basically anywhere because the technology is easy enough to use, fast enough, and basically foolproof. So that's kind of the model that we have. When we think about the idea about crossing the border, in some ways that's thinking too small about what this technology can do. The idea with screening is that it allows us to get coronavirus tests to a huge proportion of the population and get them tested frequently. And what that does is it catches cases really quickly and will drive transmission down to zero. So rather than thinking we're going to have the same amount of transmission as we do now, but we'll just have a few more checks, it's actually that doing those checks helps reduce the spread of the virus, gets the cases down very, very low. And then we can actually do less checking at things like the border because the rates are so low that the risk is actually really low. So this really is not just a technology to kind of allow us to continue doing things with the current levels of transmission. It's really a new technology that will allow us to drive transmission really down to zero. Dr. McLaren, the more you speak, the happier we all feel, the more excited I think we all feel by the prospects of having rapid tests that are A, fast, B, trustworthy, and then C, I guess we get to the other part, available. So what do we know about availability for rapid testing? Because if we could get this now, this sounds like it could make a big difference in our lives. Exactly. And I know that people are really skeptical right now and are very concerned about things that are going to provide false hope. So I want to really reiterate that this is not something that's providing false hope. Screening programs are very typical in public health. It's basically something that is always implemented whenever we have a, uh, a virus or, or some kind of disease that, that has asymptomatic spread, so spread without symptoms. And that means um, HIV, for example, tuberculosis is a concern because the symptoms aren't very clear. They can be mixed up with other um, other illnesses. And so in terms of um, availability, so this really is in some ways well within reach that this can really be a game changer for fighting the pandemic, you know, in Canada, in the U.S. and worldwide. In terms of the technology, there's a number of different firms I know in the U.S. and I think elsewhere in the world that are developing new technology to do these rapid tests. So basically, a number of them use um, what's called antigen-based testing, which is the same technology that's generally used for pregnancy tests. So it's not this brand-new technology. In some ways, it's a way of just repurposing technology that we know and we trust um, into an application for the coronavirus. And there's a number of different firms that are using different types of technology. So we may actually, or in an ideal situation, we'll end up having 
kind of a menu of different types of tests that are available that work well in different types of settings. So we might have rapid tests that are run with um, a small machine, kind of a handheld machine, that are very highly accurate. Uh, but there are, you know, you would need that machine. You wouldn't have it at home. You'd have to go to a kiosk or they'd have it at school or at airports or things like that. But there would also be um, paper strip testing, which is that kind of litmus strip, that piece of paper. And you could have those strips at home and spit into a, a glass thing, put the strip in and basically do a home test. The paper strip test may be a little bit less accurate, but you'd be able to test yourself frequently. And then you can also go and get follow-up testing with more uh, reliable tests if, if that was necessary for your particular purposes. Do we know about timeline at all? Are you hearing anything that, hey, October or, hey, by the end of 2020 or when some of this might be readily available to the public? Sure. So I think the thing about timeline is it depends on a number of different things. So the important thing is to look at, well, what are the barriers that are preventing us from having that test tomorrow? And one of the, so a lot of the technology has basically been developed. There are prototypes. It's been validated by the particular companies that have developed it. One of the barriers is that the reliability and the accuracy of each individual test from our test products from each individual company needs to be independently verified. So in the United States, that's the um, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that does that verification. Because to be able to use these tests, we need to know, well, how accurate is it so that we know how to interpret the results. So that's one of the major barriers right now is that that's part of the approval process is verifying the accuracy to be able to get it to market. Most of the companies from my understanding, are basically ready to start scaling up quite soon, maybe even immediately. And so the, the the verification and approval process is the main barrier. So that is something that um, the government can do more quickly if there's more of a demand from, from the constituencies. And so that's something if people are excited about the rapid test, they think it's going to be a way that's going to make their lives much better, and they want the government to invest resources in helping to develop those. And that's something that individuals can call their elected representatives and, and ask about and, and, and encourage their elected representatives to um, grease the wheels and, and, and get these rapid tests out to the public on the market um, available so that we can get the pandemic under control. Very interesting conversation and so encouraging. I love that you have the, the confidence that you do in all of this. And here's hoping that the tests aren't too, too expensive and that they do become, you know, as readily available as we would want them to be. Dr. McLaren, thank you so much for all of your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. That is Dr. Zoe McLaren, Associate Professor in Public Policy at the University of Maryland at Baltimore County, someone who has been working essentially round and round the clock because she's she's fighting against a lot of things in the United States, and we probably could have had a long conversation about what sorts of barricades and hurdles she's had to deal with through all of this, but the idea that rapid testing would exist that rapid testing would be accurate enough that we could say, yeah, that's that's good. And it, uh, it's something that could be here in the very near future. Sunday morning, you remember it? Had a little bit of a, not a bite to the air, not so much as yesterday, but just, just a little bit. It said, yeah, we're getting late in the month of August. And I walked outside to go and take the cat litter to the garbage 
and it turns out that some sort of critter somewhere had decided to get into our garbage. I don't even know how he did it, or she. They tipped it over. How big was this critter? Tipped it over, chewed on some tin foil, and basically spread stuff all over the place. So it took a little while, and I picked up all the little bits out of the grass, and I tipped it back up. That's going to happen, right? If if you have a place, you're going to share it with whatever comes over the hedge. Remember that cartoon movie? All the animals with the subdivisions that have been built on their property, and they would go over the hedge and into the garbage, and they would make these little dashes and runs. Yeah, that that, that is going to happen. We do share our world with wildlife because they don't know where else to go anymore. Every once in a while... You have to figure out how to deal with it. And some people will make use of, if it's a little critter, uh, wild or live traps for wild animals. Um, Sometimes you'll find an injured animal. There's a lot of little interactions that you can have. So right now on London Live, we are going to take a moment and we're going to talk about some of those interactions with wildlife and how to make sure that we're doing this so that we're not disrupting any kind of wildlife so that we're making sure that what we're doing even if it has good intentions is actually doing what we want it to be achieving brian salt is with salt haven and joins us brian thanks so much for the time this afternoon how you doing i'm doing good mike how are you you know what not too bad the garbage is picked up and whoever tipped it over on sunday didn't come back on monday so uh, i'm <laughs> thankful for that but overall we have wildlife interactions that will take place and maybe we can start with you know the the bird feeder and the idea that you'll have chipmunks and squirrels that don't just get the seeds on the ground that the birds drop they'll jump right up into the bird feeder and some people will say you know i I gotta get rid of these things and they'll go out and they'll buy a live trap can you kind of tell us what happens when an animal goes into a live trap it sounds very humane but i'm not convinced that it's it's as perfect a world as we want it to be well, it's a good it's a good question, Mike. It's not the trap itself that's a, a problem. It's what happens after the animal is trapped. Um, it's uh, you know, especially in the spring and in the fall, as a matter of fact, with uh, squirrels because they have two litters: one in the spring, one in the fall. We take mom or dad away, and especially mom, I guess, in the case of squirrels, and it's a real problem for the babies because they're not being fed, and they usually end up dying. So um, trapping and releasing away from their home turf is not really a good idea. There are other things that can be done. You know, in the case of garbage, for instance, is the, the problem isn't that the animals are getting into the garbage. The big problem is, is that the garbage is letting the animals in. So we have to use our, expert, you know, our, our intuitive thoughts and, and whatnot to outsmart these little guys. And it can be easily done. Bungee cords will help, uh, you know, put them in... in containers sealed and not opened they're smart these animals are and they're they're into getting they know which garbage cans will let them in and they make those same trips every week and uh it be a real pain but once they realize that they can't get in they just move on 
Interesting, because that's something that we might not consider either, that you know, an animal is smart enough to say, okay, it's hard there, and that makes it dangerous, so I'm not going to go to that one because it's hard. I'm going to find an easier one to get into, which is the one two doors down, and I'm going to go invade that. So if you're making it easy for animals, they're likely to, to continue to try and go through that path, right? Well, sure. It's like picking fruit off the lowest branches of the tree. You know, why make it hard for yourself? And they know that. <laughs> So, you know, we just we just have to play it smart, and usually that, that does the trick. You know, you take the food away, and 90% of the time you'll take the problem away too. There's usually something attracting them to your yard or you know, someplace that you don't want them to be. And if you just stop and think about it for a moment, what is it that's bringing them in? In the case of bird feeders, you mentioned that uh, in the introduction there, that uh, bird feeders can be a real problem, you know, where squirrels are concerned, because they're very crafty. They can, you know, you can see it on YouTube. They figure things out. Uh, they're they're amazing that way. But there are bird feeders out there that will exclude squirrels. And again, it's the same thing. If they can't get to the food that's there, then they'll move on. Uh, sometimes the food that's dropping on the ground will attract them as well, and that needs to be cleaned up every now and then. Brian Salt joining us from Salt Haven as we talk a little bit about humans and wildlife coexisting. Brian, you did mention that, you know, if you have a live trap and you end up taking a squirrel or a chipmunk away, depending on the time of year, you might be taking it away from its young. And next thing you know, somebody's walking outside and finding a baby chipmunk or a baby squirrel or a baby bunny something like that and next thing you know you're you're doing your best to care for it or the kids might put it in a box or those sorts of things you would think okay that this is this is good we're at least helping this animal otherwise it's helpless it may just sit there and and dehydrate and and that would be awful but what can you tell us about interactions with a very young animal and maybe what we need to know as humans about it well, I think, you know, the, the nurturing side of us as humans, you know, those maternal instincts, we've just got to nurture this little animal. It needs help. And that kind-hearted nature sometimes can do more harm than good. I, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. We need kind-hearted people now more than ever before in the world. <laughs> but the, the, the issue here is not knowing how to help appropriately. Some of these animals, for instance, that are, uh, that are fed are fed in proper diets. Um, they don't do very well with that. If they're in shock, they may not have a swallow reflex, in which case they'll get aspiration pneumonia and die from that. An improper diet produces uh, dehydration due to di diarrhea. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things to consider. How much to feed them, what temperature to feed them. Um, you know, every now and then you'll, you'll get away with it and the animal will survive and then it's released but in the release process, there's a lot of damage done as well because now that animal raised as a single it becomes habituated on people and is not recognized by his own kind, so he doesn't have a very good chance in the wild anymore. So the best really? advice that I think I could give listeners is to find a wildlife rehabilitator that can help. And if it's at all possible, that's the way to go. So a wildlife rehabilitator, almost right from the start. It, this is not, okay, let's go and get, get some milk for this animal or whatever it is. Find a wildlife rehabilitator, let them know and say, this is what we have, you know, and then what should you do from there? You mentioned that if an animal is raised by humans and then released back into the wild, that its kind won't necessarily 
recognize it. That's that's fascinating. Where does that come from? Well, they, they become habituated on people, meaning that they come to expect certain things from people, food being the biggest item. And so they don't have those natural foraging tendencies. Um, they haven't been able to relate to their own kind because they haven't been in the presence of their own kind. And somehow, I'm not sure how the process works, but their own kind doesn't recognize them as being a normal squirrel. And uh, so they're kind of shunned in their own society type of thing. It's, it's devastating to them because they just don't have the chance for normal mating privileges. They, they, uh, they end up getting in scraps with, the, with other squirrels, and they don't know how to fight because they haven't grown up with that with siblings and uh, infections and so on and so forth. So it's uh, a tough go for them. And, but all that comes from kind people trying to do the right thing but not knowing how to go about it. The other thing to mention, too, is that it's actually illegal for people to have wildlife in their possession for longer than 48 hours. Um, but there's good reasons for those laws because these wild animals oftentimes will carry parasites and diseases, uh, call them zoonotics, that are transferable to humans. And with COVID-19 being a great example of how that virus dumped from animals to humans, it's not a good idea to have that animal in your home, especially if you have pets of your own or children. You're really running out of a risk. Yeah. Great advice, great information. Brian, thanks so much. But, again, a wildlife rehabilitator, if we have a bunch of emergency contacts, might not be a bad idea to have that on there just in case you walk outside and find something some morning, right? Yeah, absolutely. We On a busy day, we'll get about 150 phone calls uh, for sick, injured, or orphaned wildlife, and a lot of them in the spring and summer are young animals. Um, so if if we get full and somebody calls, we will always give them a list uh, through the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry of other wildlife rehabilitators that they can contact and see if they're available to, uh, to take them in. It's an excellent resource. It gives them names, phone numbers, locations, areas of expertise, and so on. Brian, thanks so much for all that you do for the little critters in our world, and thanks for sharing your expertise with us this afternoon. You're quite welcome, Mike. You have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Keep safe. Thank you. That's Brian Salt from Salt Haven. So as much as you have that instinct to say, yeah, we've got to go and, and get this animal some milk or we've got to do this, as Brian says, you don't know what the diet of the animal is. Next thing you know, the animal has diarrhea, it's getting dehydrated, all kinds of problems exist. And isn't it interesting that when you are raised by humans or when humans play a part in your upbringing, that they won't learn those little cues? Got an interesting email about homeschooling, and that's that's a conversation we should have sometime where, you know, there are some real advantages to homeschooling, but at the same time, I often wonder, it's those little cues, and Brian just brought it up, and it makes you think that, yeah, the the little things. In fact, we'll talk about that next. I'll I'll read you what I got from Mike by way of an email about homeschooling, and then look at just a couple of things. I'm not down on homeschooling at all. I think I think it's you know it's it's very very good, but there are some things that you're just not getting through homeschooling, no matter how hard you try. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL.